Hi everyone, it is a Binarix audio podcast interview and today we will talk about the pending financial crisis, how central bank implements digital currencies and could they become a counterbalance for cryptocurrencies. And for the fourth episode of our interviews, we have invited Dr. James Nout. Dr. Nout is an adjunct associate professor at the New York University in the International Relations Department and political economy blogger. Hi Dr. Nout, nice to meet you. Hi, it's good to meet you Alex. Thank you that you accepted my invite and let's talk about the coronavirus and the financial crisis. On your blog you have the article Coronavirus Hassens the Financial Crisis uh, where you discuss the influence of the quarantine and the COVID-19 obstacles. Could you please tell our readers more about the economic problems connected to the quarantine and coronavirus? Yes, well this is a really unusual economic crisis compared to past history because usually major crises start with something happening in finance. And indeed, a lot of people don't realize it, but there was already the beginnings of a financial crash in December of last year, just before the coronavirus hit. Uh, but that was counteracted by very extensive intervention by the Fed in the United States and central banks around the world to try to inject liquidity into a banking system that was tottering already last December. And then when the coronavirus hit, which is what is so unusual compared to many past uh, crises, that it started with a significant decrease in production. Mm -hmm. Most crises start with a restriction of credit and a kind of finance first collapse. You know, asset prices collapse, stocks, bonds, uh, companies default, sometimes banks fail. And then gradually the financial failure translates into a failure in the real economy as more people are thrown out of work, companies close down, they can't pay their debts and so forth. So usually it starts in finance and it's, and it's transmitted to the real economy. And there were problems in finance, as I mentioned, even prior to this crisis starting. But the real impact of the coronavirus was to keep people at home and not producing. And of course, especially hard hit were things like tourism, travel, uh, commercial real estate, uh, all kinds of small businesses that rely on foot traffic. Mm -hmm. All large parts of the economy just shut down uh, with no, you know, no production, no business whatsoever. And that, of course, stimulated other sections. As you know, companies like Amazon did very well because they took over the delivery of a lot of goods that people might have gone out to shop for in the past. Sure. But in general, there was such a, an, a big closing of the physical economy, the production of goods and services that would have immediately precipitated a horrendous financial crisis, except for the fact that all around the world, central banks pumped in trillions of liquidity from the central banking sector and more from spending, such as the, the relief package that was passed in the United States this year. Mm -hmm. So the situation in the world economy is very desperate right now. And since the tense situation with the COVID-19 and the problematic use of the fiat money, while the current time, governments of many countries have begun to create their own central bank digital currencies. They claim to be a strong alternative for cryptocurrencies. And have you ever interest in cryptocurrencies or right now digital currencies? Yes, it's an area that I've, uh, I've studied because my, one of my main areas of research is into finance, banking, financial assets and uh, currency values. So yes, uh, this is an area that I look into. I'm not particularly a specialist in that area, but it's because it's part of the general 
financial picture, of course, it's something I need to research and understand. And right now, about the digital currencies that were created by the European Bank, also by the China, and waiting to be prepared by the USA, do you believe in a strong competition for cryptocurrencies or just as good alternative to usual fiat money nowadays in front of quarantine? Okay, first of all, there's several. This is where we get into the, the really big issues of uh, financial theory, which I think a, a lot of your listeners may be unfamiliar with. But first of all, I don't consider everything called a currency as a currency. Mm -hmm. That is, cryptocurrencies are not currencies. They're assets. Uh, they're assets with an exchange value. In that respect, I think they're more like, uh, for example, art or antiques, which are scarce assets that have no great intrinsic value but may have a very high asset and exchange value based on uh, supply and demand for them. Mm -hmm. Cryptocurrencies are like that. They're not very easily used in transactions, so they're not currencies. And any more than, say, art is a currency. Yes, you can sell art or actual currency and then use that for many transactions. But cri cryptocurrencies so far are fairly limited in their use as currencies. In particular, there's not much of a credit market uh, against Uh, holdings of cryptocurrency. That is, they're not considered so, an asset uh, in terms of credit worthiness. And that's super important for the way the credit system works. So cryptocurrencies, I put more as assets than as currencies. Although, of course, this is a matter of gradation. As they become more used in transactions, they do move toward currency. But I think the currency part of the name of cryptocurrencies is more of an aspiration than it is a reality at this point. Okay, second point is, that currencies themselves are not fiat money. This term fiat money has gotten to be very popular in some circles, but I think it's inaccurate, and let me explain why. The, the definition of fiat money is that government determines. In fact, government doesn't determine and never has determined the value of national currencies. The value of national currencies is determined by the efforts of the banking system to expand and contract credit. The value of currencies comes from the credit system. If the credit system, which is largely in private hands, expands credit very rapidly and therefore increases purchasing power in an economy, uh, let's say a dollar or mm -hmm. a euro, will go down in value if there's too much purchasing power in relation to what's actually produced and available for sale. On the other hand, if credit is withdrawn, if credit is contracted within the banking and financial system, then the value of currencies will go up. It has nothing to do with the government in the first instance. In fact, currencies, private currencies long predated the government. Um, the first instance of private currencies was circulating with merchants in China in the fifth century. It wasn't until the 11th century or later that the Chinese government got involved in currencies. Mm -hmm. So paper currency is not based on the values given it by the government. It's based on the value that it has through the, the credit and financial system. So why the credit and financial system sustain the value of currencies? This is super important to understand. Because loans and bonds and mm -hmm. bills are also denominated in that currency. Who issues loans, bonds, and bills? Largely banks. Mm -hmm. Banks have a, a very powerful interest in maintaining the value of their own portfolios. Therefore, bonds, bills, bank loans, and other financial instruments that are denominated, whose value is denominated in currencies, Uh, private banks have an incentive in keeping the value of those high. So the, the way they do that is by 
either expanding to lower or contracting to raise the values of currencies. If they contract credit, currency values will go up. If they expand credit, eventually currency values will go down as the amount of credit available for purchases and tends to bid up prices if it's excessive in relation to the available things to buy. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think a lot of the community that talks about the value of assets and currencies misses a big part of the picture, which is the credit system, the credit banking financial system. If you understand that, you'll understand, for example, that, listen up, this is a key point. Countries that have a strong banking system have a strong currency. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. There's no accident. Switzerland is not a great power, but the Swiss franc is a strong currency. No accident there. It doesn't have to do with the government. It has to do with the fact that Swiss, Switzerland has powerful central banks. If you look at the nat private bank, if you look at the 19th century, for example, what were the strong currencies? The British pound, the German, you know, the German mark, mm -hmm. the French franc. What do those three countries have? And also, by the way, the Belgian uh, currency. What do those countries have in common? A very powerful banking system. On the other hand, Weak currencies were the Austro-Hungarian guilder, the, the Italian lira, and the Russian ruble. Mm -hmm. What do those have in common? They had in common weak banking systems. And the only way you could hold up the value of the weak currencies is by linking them to gold and then having the, the strong currency countries supporting them essentially through mm -hmm. loans via central banks. But the natural tendency of a currency in a country with weak banks is to be inflationary because there tends to be an expansion of credit faster than the banking system, a strong banking system would like. When you have a strong banking system, they don't want currency to inflate prices too fast because that would reduce the value of their entire portfolio of loans and bonds. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that creates a powerful private interest in the currency not depreciating. So that's why it's not a fiat currency. Its value is determined by the banking system as a whole and its efforts to defend the currency through control of the credit, which is largely issued by the banking system itself. Mm -hmm. Understood. Thank you. Um, when the first wave of the virus started, many cryptocurrencies, uh, they grew their value. And uh, in front of the second wave, just in front of the next quarantine, would you rather invest in cryptocurrencies or in gold, for example? Well, gold and cryptocurrencies both are depend on the wider circumstances in the economy. Their value depends on the wider circumstances. Um, right now, I don't think there's a, going to be a strong tendency for inflation mm -hmm. of the major currencies, such as the U.S. dollar, the euro, the Swiss franc, uh, or the Japanese yen, so forth even renminbi for that matter. I think they're going to hold their value. There may be some weaker currencies mm -hmm. because, uh, that have significant inflation. So as long as you have assets that are denominated in those currencies or you, you own those currencies, you're not going to lose a great deal of value. This idea that, that currencies are going to deflate to nothing uh, I think is wrong-headed because it assumes that the banking system is powerless. Mm -hmm. The only way you could have a currency, let's say the American dollar, collapse is if Wall Street completely collapsed. That is, if the great banks in the United States, you know, all dissolved. You could potentially have a weak dollar that way because there'd no longer be that power to defend it. Mm -hmm. But, or, you know, the same thing in, let's say, Britain with the pound. You know, if you had the ma a major collapse of the entire British financial system, yes, you could have a falling in the value of the, of the pound. But I think generally currencies are going to be relatively strong. Now, the question then comes. Are currencies, there are other assets such as gold or cryptocurrencies, going to be more valuable than national currencies of, a, let's say, a strong 
country with a strong banking system? Mm -hmm. Probably not. What I would expect is that in the run-up to a crisis, mm -hmm. there will be a flight toward assets like gold and cryptocurrencies. I think they're kind of similar. Uh -huh. okay. uh, and, and art, for that matter. Why? Because there's a, people are initially, when they think there's going to be instability, they want to get to something that they think will, uh, will not be subject to downward pressures that might be expected of, of ordinary currencies. However, that's a kind of short-run phenomenon. As people seek various liquid assets at the beginning of a crisis, they're going to, these things are going to go up, gold, commodities perhaps. But the problem comes if you have a fairly deep financial crisis, a recession, a lot of institutions and individuals will have to liquidate their assets in order to pay their debts. Yeah, it's all possible. Right. So as people are liquidating assets, what happens in every crisis? They sell good assets to pay their debt on bad assets. That's what happens. That's what a financial crisis is. You sell all the valuable, all the good assets, everything that has appreciated in value. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, know, you don't want to sell something that's depreciated in value. Why? Because you're going to lock in the loss. So you sell everything that has appreciated in value, that has actual real, you know, good returns, and you use that to pay your debts on the bad assets. And that means that it's a kind of contagion effect where the best assets become downgraded because, or the, let's say best in terms of having increased in value the most. Mm -hmm they will likely be sold in great quantities in order to pay for debts. Now, if all the holders of cryptocurrency had no debt, then crypto cryptocurrency would be a strong asset. All right? You see the connection there? That's why it's yeah. important to understand the financial system. If I don't have to liquidate anything in a crisis, mm -hmm. then I will be in a strong position and I won't have to sell my assets. However, if I have a lot of debt and a crisis hits and I can't, and let's say my revenue falls, whatever I'm doing, whether it's business or mm -hmm. it's my job, if I'm you know, employed, my revenue falls, I have to liquidate assets. Well, which ones am I going to liquidate? I'm going to liquidate first those that appreciated the most because I'll get the, you know, the, the best amount of return from that and to be able to pay my debts on everything that's, mm -hmm. uh, if I sell what's fallen the most, I'm not going to get much for it and I'm going to lock in losses. So that's not good. So, so yes, it depends a lot on the credit system more than anything else. And I think insofar as people have bought gold on credit, have bought stocks on credit, have bought cryptocurrencies on credit, insofar as that's true, or holders of those wealth are just heavily indebted anyway, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, those assets will fall as the credit crisis deepens. They will fall because people will have to sell them. There'll be many more sellers than buyers, and they will fall. Mm -hmm. But, you know, part of the difficulty with cryptocurrencies is they're not very transparent. So you don't necessarily know where they're being held. Obviously, some banks or public companies maybe have some cryptocurrency on their balance sheets, and you can see that. But many of the holders of cryptocurrency, you don't know who they are. So you don't know what their debt position is. It's a little bit like private companies. You know, right now, there are probably a lot of private companies that are basically insolvent. But we can't know how much and to what degree because we don't see their balance sheets. They're not public companies. Uh, in defense of the cryptocurrencies, I can say that uh, there are many services uh, that can track the order of the offers of the trades by the blockchain network because, like, how it's built, each block, uh, each trade just mm. connected to the last one, to the previous, and to the next one. So right now you have a very, very, very long chain of different trades and transactions and uh, in theory you can even find uh, each transaction which were made from this year 
till maybe 29th or for example 2010th and find even the person who was who did it first that uh, if not only the person was anonymous because there is only problem that for example for some usage transactions you need the KYC like the identification of your personality of your of your passport uh, data of your ID many of the exchanges they provide you a demo interface like uh, small prices uh, small amounts of bitcoins of cryptocurrencies to trade or to sell without KYC without verification of your personality and right. yeah well but but what i'm saying is you know even if you know the name Mm -hmm. of every person who owns cryptocurrency and how much. And I, and I think that's more information than we have. But even if we had that, we don't know the credit position of all those people. Just like we don't know the credit position of all the private companies in the world. Yep. We don't. Right. So that's the... I, I'm not saying there's that's wrong or right. I'm just saying as a matter of fact, that's information we don't have. So if you want me to predict what's going to happen to cryptocurrency, I would want to know that. Mm -hmm. Not knowing that, I think it's, it's, a, it's a question mark. If most people holding cryptocurrencies have little debt and they're, you know, there's they have secure income and they're not indebted, mm -hmm. then the value is likely to go up. It's likely to hold in a crisis. It's just a, a data point which I don't know. On the other hand, if a lot of people using cryptocurrency have been heavily indebted mm -hmm. uh, in the run up, you know, as asset values are, are, are rising, they, they've borrowed a lot of money, borrowed money either to buy cryptocurrency itself or perhaps to buy other assets which are now falling in value, you know, in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Then they're li liable to be more sellers than buyers and the currency is likely to go down. Okay? That's it. And so it's hard to predict without knowing the totality of the credit positions of the actors. And the general principle is this, that any asset in which there's uh, heavy debt exposure will be vulnerable, you know, insofar as owners of it may not be able to cover their debts in the event that their income goes down. And so those are assets that are going to uh, suffer from bankruptcy, from defaults or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then as those work their way through the system, people who have good assets and debts may sell those good assets in order to pay those debts. And what will happen in that shakeout process and through any crisis is largely unpredictable because we simply don't have enough information about it. Mm -hmm. We never have. There's not enough transparency in, in the credit system as a whole to be able to predict that very accurately. Mm -hmm. I myself would feel more secure about it if I knew that many people who buy cryptocurrencies are, in fact, quite solvent personally. If I knew that, which I don't, mm -hmm. then I would feel that its value is likely to, to be sustainable through a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, but what if the cryptocurrencies uh, will become more adopted and uh, legal everywhere in the world and uh, they'll grow in their price? Would you wonder about buying, for example, the Bitcoin before the quarantine or something like that? Well, this gets at the political question, which I know you had in your list of questions, and it's a very, very important one, because I do think that governments, and it'll be different in different countries perhaps, but many governments who may be concerned about competition from cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. uh, may try to regulate uh, their use and transactions. Mm -hmm. So... I think that's implied by some of your questions where you're asking about, you know, the digital currency. Now, this is really awkward because people use the term currency, again, for the things which are very different. I don't particularly like cryptocurrency. I'd rather call them crypto assets. 
mm -hmm. uh, until they become really very, very uh, fluid in transactions and widely used, let's say. I mean, what defines a currency to some extent is, is its usefulness in paying debts. Mm -hmm. You know, as an instrument of debt payment without conversion, right? Now, cryptocurrencies now could be used like fine art could because if you're in debt, you could sell your art or you could sell your mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and then you could pay the debt. But it's probably a little harder to do that if, you know, Citibank wants you to pay off, you know, a mm -hmm. loan. You, don't, you know, you may have to use U.S. dollars for that. Mm -hmm. So you may have to convert first before you can pay it. So it's, it's one step removed and you have a problem that in a crisis, the value will be uncertain and may collapse or it may become hard to transact. Uh, there may be some, because if many people are trying to tran transact at once, there may be some difficulty in transacting. Now, I've had different uh, cryptocurrency enthusiasts argue that that's not likely to happen, but I, I think there are potential bottlenecks in terms of transacting business, as often occurs also in a crisis when many people are trying to do it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Even the big banks had this problem because they had so many people trying to make transactions that their, their backroom operations got bogged down and they were slow in executing trades. This often happens in a crisis, and I'm not sure that the cryptocurrency world will be as fluid as the banking world. I don't think it's been put to that test yet. Maybe it also could be modernized or improved before that, and maybe it One also... would hope. Yeah, we'll hope. Uh, so, uh, in your opinion, which steps central banks and financial institutes should do to prevent the possible financial crash? Well, I think it's difficult because one of the arguments I make is that central banks are only as strong as their own balance sheets. And... The problem that has happened recently is that we've, we're running an experiment that's never been done in world history. That is, we're assuming that central banks will never run out of bullets, that they'll never run out of, of capacity to inject new credit into the system. And the way they're doing it largely is traditionally they did it largely by buying uh, you know, government bonds and bills, so the, buying the, the credit instruments of governments. Today, actually since 2008, we've seen central banks greatly expand the categories of assets that they're buying. Mm -hmm. And in particular, around the world, major central banks have begun buying commercial bonds, commercial bills, and even stocks, which in the past has always has generally been prohibited either by law or by policy. The danger of, of loading up, there's several dangers in this. One is that if you're loading up on assets like this and they start crashing in value, the central bank could actually be losing money. The Swiss central bank was losing money about a year ago. Mm -hmm. You know, the strongest currency in the world, the, the central bank of the strongest currency in the world was losing money because they bought a lot of American stocks at a time when the stock prices were crashing mm -hmm. uh, earlier in this year. They actually had a negative return. Now, central banks through history have never had negative returns because they own government securities of major governments which don't default and don't, you know, they may pay a low interest rate, but they pay some, in, there's some yield on those bonds, on you know, government bonds. But now we have government bonds in Europe, in particular in Japan, that have negative yield, okay? So they're not making money on their government portfolio and they're buying private commercial paper and stocks that can potentially lose value or even default. Mm -hmm. So as you go into an economic crisis, particularly a serious one, central banks are going to start to see their, their portfolios go negative. And again, this is something that has never happened 
in world history. So it's a kind of a brave new experiment what the impact of this will be. I think the worst case is that in order to avoid having, you know, massive and expensive taxpayer bailouts of central banks, mm -hmm. what's going to happen is in the midst of a crisis, the central bank will stop its own credit issuance and try to start selling assets instead of buying assets, which of course would intensify the crisis. You know, we haven't really thought about that much. And I'm, in fact, I'm working on a paper right now. My next blog, which you can watch for in a week or so, is going to be exactly on this topic. It's when do, you know, central banks run out of bullets? When do they exhaust their capacity to expand the credit of economies? And, you know, some people think that central banks have some kind of magical position in the financial system. They don't. They're just banks like any others. And in fact, in some ways, they're weaker than most banks because they are they have been traditionally restricted in, in what kinds of operations they can undertake. So even though they may have some narrow privileges granted to them by the government, they're still operating in the financial system much like any other bank. That is, they're buying and selling assets. Mm -hmm. As the media say, China has already launched its digital yuan, and right now they're testing the technology. It could give China's economics a head start in front of other countries in the world. So, and that's I wanted to ask you, how do you think, can the digital currencies and cryptocurrencies influence the political or economical relationships between the countries? Well, yes, I would say there's a couple of things that are new. First of all, the general idea is currencies have been digital currencies for a long time. That is, the vast majority of the stock of, of a currency at any one time is just an electronic entry in some account. Mm -hmm. You know? That's not new. The fact that, you know, obviously, you know, you don't have paper tokens representing the quantity of M1. You know, the vast majority of M1 is, in fact, enter entries in a logbook, in a ledger. Mm -hmm. That's it. They're electronic already. What's different about these is the central control and information on transactions. Okay. Right now, the ledger books, a little bit like, as you know, cryptocurrency ledger books are a distributed kind of ledger. Right now, what we have is a kind of distributed ledger for ordinary currency, for national currencies, in the sense that the transactions are recorded all over the place, you know, in credit card companies and commercial companies that are buying and selling merchandise and in banks that are doing the clearing, the transaction, mm -hmm. private banks, right, because the central bank doesn't do transaction clearing. You know, what the Chinese currency, digital currency is essentially doing is bringing all of that information into a centralized mm -hmm. government-controlled data repository so that the government will be able to have information about and monitor all the transactions that are done. And that is a new power. That's essentially increasing the powers of central banks and government. Mm -hmm. um, I think there will be a lot of pushback against it in some countries. I don't think the United States, for example, would easily adopt that. People wouldn't trust it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think in many of the democratic countries, there'll be a real, there's already skepticism about the relative independence of central banks and the banking system in general. They're going to be suspicious about it. It won't be easy to, to sell. I know there are some European countries, certainly Sweden has gone down the road to, to try to develop this. But in China, it, it really is well developed. And part, part of the reason for that is, I, I was last in China in January, by the way, just as the coronavirus was breaking out. Mm -hmm. And the use of electronic payments there is completely universal. Cash is now difficult to use in some places. Like a lot of stores and small shops will not use, they not have change. You know, so if you give them a, a bill, they'll have to run to a neighboring shop you know, to get some change. Mm -hmm. They don't deal in cash anymore. And, and this is funny. Even the 
street vendors. You know, like you have a, a woman sitting on the street selling fruit, for example. Uh huh. She's going to have a code, you know, one of these QR codes for you to scan with your phone to do electronic payment. But she may not have any change. Uh -huh. She may not even be de dealing with cash. So already electronic payment is more universal in China than cash. Mm -hmm. What the government in China is concerned with doing is getting the information about these transactions more under its control. Because right now it's mainly private companies that, you know, Alipay and WeChat mm -hmm. control much of this electronic transaction. And the government sees that they've been gradually trying to restrict. Like, for example, when I first went to China, um, I lived there for seven years, 2007 to 2014. Mm -hmm. During that period, I often used WeChat, and sometimes people could pay me on WeChat, and it worked fine. But toward the end of that period, the Chinese government established a new regulation that you couldn't get paid on WeChat if you didn't have a Chinese bank account. Uh -huh. that, that was okay, because I lived there, and I had a work visa so I could get a Chinese bank account. However, now when I go back as a tourist, I can't use that payment system because you can only open a Chinese bank account now. It didn't used to be true, but now it is true. If you have a local you know, residence permit and, and a work visa. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you have a legitimate income in China that's registered. The government knows about it. It's registered for tax purposes and so forth. So what you see is that these uh, digital payment systems that are controlled by private companies are increasingly useful only by Chinese. Mm -hmm. and not by foreigners and less long-term residents, right? And they're also more and more being squeezed so that I think what the government's going to do with its cryptocurrency, or rather uh, digital currency, is going to try to squeeze more and more of the payment system into its own means so that it can monitor these transactions more directly in order to prevent criminal activity, to prevent fraud, and especially to prevent unauthorized mm -hmm. currency flight out of the country. So uh, since we mentioned cash money... How do you think? Uh, how soon cash money will leave the market? Well, that depends a lot on the country. And in China, it's already far advanced. I haven't been to Sweden, so I don't know. I know that they were moving in that direction, too. Uh, personally, I think it's a bad thing because I think that money is too opaque. It's mm -hmm. not opaque to the government or to centralized authorities, whether they be private, you know, private companies or the government, let's say. It's not opaque to those central authorities that are issuing it, but it is opaque to the consumer. That is, they don't know much about what's going on, you know, what use is being made of the information. They don't have much idea about the creditworthiness of the institutions that are backing this. Let's take a private payment system like uh, Alipay. You know, what if they have some major financial problem and, and they collapse? You know, you thought you had currency, you know, in this company and it disappears, right? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have guarantee from the government even. That value is there. Now, they might try to backstop it in some way, but right now there's no official way to do that, I think. The, the assumption is the company is being honestly managed. It's not over-indebted. It's not doing you know, dangerous things with your deposit in, in that company insofar as you're using it as a way of the virtual currency that you're depositing there. Um, there have been many scandals in China already in a smaller scale where, for example, there are bike sharing systems in China mm -hmm. and they're private companies. And you put a deposit with those bike sharing companies and then you basically can use a bicycle for free. You get a code on your phone and you unlock the bicycle as long as you're registered with it. But they keep your deposit and then they take your deposit and they invest it to make money. That's how they make money. They don't charge rental for the bikes. They, they get money by investing your currency. Now, what happens is sometimes... Those companies investing uh, all their members' deposits go bankrupt. 
mm-hmm. and then the members' deposits disappear, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no physical record of it. You know, it's an electronic thing. You don't have paper currency. You don't have anything you're really holding on to. It's, it's in their ledger. It's not, it doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah. And the, the currency itself that you have deposited there is only as good as the solvency of the company. That's happened a few times, but it hasn't really shaken that, that share sector. It actually has been in, continuing to grow very, very fast. So there's all kinds of things beyond the bike share. That are, that are widely used in China today. So it's not only in terms of a payment system, it's also in terms of, you know, you deposit, you get membership in various kinds of share systems, whether it be, let's say, for hotels, you know, like the uh, being able to use apartments on a share basis, or whether it's bicycles or cars or, you know, vacation homes or whatever. There's all kinds of possibilities for this kind of a shared economy. But a lot of them rely on this business model of making an upfront deposit, which then means that you could potentially lose uh, if the company is corrupt or insolvent. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the money actively manipulated and influenced by economy institutions and the government. And here, on this point, I wanted to ask you about the election in the USA. As I knew, Biden should become a winner and the next president of the USA. So, on your opinion how Biden could affect the cryptocurrencies and the global economy. Well, I'm expecting a, a major financial crisis probably in 2021, a global financial crisis. And I think regardless of who's president, there's not much that can be done to stop it because mm-hmm. it really depends on what's happening in the private asset and credit markets more than uh, whatever a president could do. Uh, the only thing the president will be able to do is decide how to ameliorate, you know, people who are suffering losses, who to help and who to let go under. And I'm not very optimistic about that, in part because the Senate will remain under the control of the opposition party, the Republican Party. And so President Biden is going to be in a position where he basically can't pass any new legislation, and that includes appropriations spending money without the approval of the opposing party, which means there will probably be very limited stimulus in the next downturn. I'm sure your listeners are aware that there was a, a large stimulus package passed in the United States at the beginning of the COVID crisis to try to help people and mm-hmm. companies that are severely affected by the COVID uh, closure of the economy as a result of COVID. Well, there was an attempt to pass a second stimulus package beginning in June of this year and continuing up to the election. And it failed, largely blocked by the Senate. Mm -hmm. The Senate is still under Republican control. And if the Republican Senate refused to pass a stimulus when their ally Trump was in power, they're even less likely to pass a stimulus when the opposing party, Biden, as president, is in power. So I really expect there will be, if there's any stimulus at all, it'll be directed to corporations. There probably won't be much help for ordinary people, so I expect a lot of bankruptcy, a lot of uh, loss of homes, loss of uh, apartments. You know, one of the things that's been happening, and I'm not sure I'm aware of this, but in the United States, a lot of mortgages, millions and millions of mortgages and renters are behind in their payments. So homeowners have not been able to make their mortgage payments. Renters have not been able to make their rent payment. This is true both of individuals and of commercial properties. For example, if you own a restaurant in New York Mm -hmm. and you rent the space for that restaurant, your restaurant has been closed since March. You're getting very little income. You can't pay your rent. You have, let's say, a 10-year lease. What's happening is those restaurant owners obviously can't pay the lease. They go to their 
landlord and they say, look, I can't pay. I can pay maybe half, something like that. I, mm-hmm. I have a little bit of takeout business, but not nearly as much as they used to. Their landlord may say, no, uh, if you can't pay, get out and just lock them out. Or the landlord may say, okay, I'll, this is very common now. I'll cut your rent in half, but I'm not forgiving it. You have to pay it next year. Mm-hmm. So that means a lot of small businesses and individuals. It's a little bit like 2008 when there were teaser mortgages where you paid a little bit up front and then you had a big balloon payment coming in after two years. It's like that with rent and, and mortgages in the United States. A lot of people right now are having their payments deferred, but not forgiven. So they're being piled up into 2021. When those come due in 2021, people will probably not be able to pay. Many people will not be able to pay. They'll either be evicted from their homes or locked out of their rental property. And that will cause a very, very severe hardship, as well as uh, many others Mm -hmm. who can't pay, of course, then will leave the landlords unable to pay their own debts. So that's part of the financial crisis. Uh, If a landlord has evicted a tenant and has difficulty finding a new tenant who can pay the rent they want, they'll have empty buildings. There are empty buildings all around every city, commercial, residential, uh, a lot of places in, in the United States now are boarded up because they, you know, the tenants have been evicted. Mm-hmm. So all those people not able to pay means also a lot of owners of real estate, commercial and individual households, will not be able to pay their debts. And so then you get a whole, you know, bubble collapse of the credit bubble when a lot of loans uh, go bad. Yeah. So yeah, this is it, it's almost inevitable that it's going to happen. And of course. The fact that we're very unlikely to get any fresh stimulus, or if we get a stimulus, it's going to be targeted against, you know, targeted in favor of specific companies that the Republicans might want to bail out, donors of theirs and so forth. It won't reach the majority of the people. So I think it's very likely that we'll have a severe crisis and there's not a lot that that, uh, Biden will be able to do about it. Mm -hmm. Thank you much. And for the last one, I wanted to ask you a question about the future sites. So I can definitely say that one of the main purposes of the blockchain and digital currencies is to maximize speed and opportunities of usage and also to minimize information and privacy loses. Based on these terms, what do you think? Which industries can adopt the blockchain and digital currencies next? Or would they evolve in the future? Yeah, I think that's a really difficult question because it's going to depend on a number of factors. Uh, Okay, for example, some large internet companies might decide to allow uh, purchase of products by digital currencies, but they also might decide to create their own competing currency and only accept it. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on the policy of the companies. There's no reason why this is the difference from national currencies. There's no reason why any particular commercial interest will necessarily want to make payment available to any particular cryptocurrency. Number one, most cryptocurrencies, with the exception of the few of the very, very biggest, don't have, you know, we're only talking about a few billion, perhaps tens of billion. The largest ones are bigger, of course, but I mean, a lot of the smaller ones, there's not a big pool there. And so, you know, not allowing those to be used for purchases doesn't affect much the business of the company. You know, all of those people that own those currencies have alternative ways of payment. And for the company deciding to use them as means of payment, there's a certain complexity in that. They have to create new accounting systems. They have to create exchange rate calculations, just like if you were to, you know, accept payment in a foreign currency, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's got a different currency value than that other thing. 
And you know, it adds a layer of complexity. There's no reason to add that complexity and cost unless you're accessing a big amount of funds of, of a spending stream that would be un- otherwise inaccessible to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think for any customers, any customer who owns cryptocurrency has alternative means of payment. So not accepting the currency doesn't mean that necessarily that a company would lose the sale. Accepting the currency will mean a definite cost. So unless it becomes a really, really big means of payment, there are incentives for, of a company not to adopt it as a means of payment because it's costly to them and it may not gain customers all that much. I think only the very biggest, and in particularly, I think, cryptocurrencies that are created by companies that are already big, like, you know, for example, PayPal or Facebook or something mm-hmm. like that, because they already have billions of users. You know, they might want to capture some of the, the value of transactions that occur in, in cryptocurrencies. They may want to capture that some of that for themselves, but they have no necessary reason for wanting to give that privilege to outside groups unless they have a business alliance with them. They have some you know, particular reason. I, I think it's going to be harder to extend it because, you know, that's, again, different from a national currency. If you're operating in a national currency, most of your transactions and debts are in that currency. Mm-hmm. And so, and also your accounts, you know, your accounting records are in that currency. So that's the natural currency in which to transact. Anything other than that is going to add expense and complication and risk, possible currency risk. Of course. If you're holding balances in a currency that devalues, obviously there's a currency risk, whether it's, you know, a Bitcoin or Japanese yen, you know. So, and if you make commitments in a currency, in other words, I commit to giving you a refund or I commit to letting you pay over time, you know, a credit installment payment system, you're also taking on currency risk, right? So businesses are going to factor all those risks into accepting payment in anything other than the national currency that they typically transact with. And again, that it applies to foreign currencies almost equally as it would to cryptocurrencies. As you know, with foreign currencies, many companies will accept them as payment, but there'll be some, you know, some small charge built into the exchange rate so that they can recoup some of the cost of their accepting that foreign currency. Mm-hmm. Understood. So, thank you much for your informative answers. I highly appreciate that you have accepted my invite. It was a really very interesting talk and uh, really very informative and useful answers. Thank you much. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you.